Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about the new health care law and what it might mean for Indiana and for some of uh, Indiana's poor citizens. Joining us in the studio are three uh, physicians who are with us today. Raj Hadawi is with us. He's a board member for Volunteers in Medicine clinic here in Bloomington. He actually was the guiding force and the founder uh, of that clinic. Um, St. Anne's Clinic volunteer medical doctor James Turner from Terre Haute is here with us today. And also uh, Dr. Rob Stone is back. Dr. Stone is uh, an emergency room physician and also the director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. If you have uh, any questions or comments, you can phone us at 855-0811 or one. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've lost the number. I've said it a million times. But I'll, <laughs> watermelon, watermelon. Right, I don't right. know. <laughs> you can email, you can, we'll get that. You can email us at uh, – you can go to the website, uh, noon edition, or um, WFIU.org. Right? Works for me. <laughs> slash noon edition. Yeah, I, you know, I, I said, said this for 10 years in a row, but I didn't write it down today, so – all right. Well, let's talk about health care. Um, Dr. Hadawi's here, Dr. Stone and Dr. Turner. And, you know, we just have had the big debate on the health care bill and we got it. Uh, there's a health, health, new health law in the country. And I know, um, Dr. Stone, you've been very active in um, basically in, in legislation about health coverage and, and trying – you've been a, a fan of the single-payer system. So um, – what, give us sort of an overview of what's just happened. You know, what would you give the grade of this new um, health law? Well, what I like to say or I find myself saying right now is um, health care reform, I'm still for it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not done yet. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have said to me, aren't you overjoyed by the bill that passed, and I would say I'm I'm relieved that it passed. I'm 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 really glad that we passed something. But there are a lot of problems with this bill. There are problems from a policy perspective. But I think that it is we have to accept it now. Is that it's it's where the country is going, and I think it's really important though to understand some of the shortcomings of the bill and understand what the strong points of the bill are. And I think we're going to need to protect the strong points because some of those are going to be attacked and I think we need to work towards fixing some of the weaker points. Mm -hmm. I I have not read the bill. I only know what I have gathered from other news sources. So, you know, let me put that out there. But it it occurs to me that it – from what I'm hearing, it sounds more like as opposed to a true health care reform, it's how we – it's a paying – mechanism reform. Um, So I I guess I'd like to get your reaction to that. Well, there's a lot of things in this bill, but ultimately, you know, it's going to be a mechanism to try to expand coverage to somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million people and keeping in perspective that we expect by the end, by, by sometime in 2010 that we'll probably have 50 million uninsured in this country. So uh, – and, and this bill, of course, isn't going to take full – really start even – won't take full effect for you know, something like eight years. It's going to not – a lot of the important and larger parts of the bill aren't going to really be rolled out until starting in 2014. And so, you know, we don't really even know, of course, how many of the uninsured are going to be covered, but it's going to be hopefully more than half. And so that's a really good thing. Now, just breaking the bill down a little bit, <clears throat> there are two main ways in which um, peop- the, 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 we're going to get those roughly 30, 32 million uninsured covered. And one way is going to be through expansion of Medicaid. And, of course, everybody – 
so easily gets confused between Medicare and Medicaid. And the way I rec- I re- I'd remember it is that we care for the older folks and we mm-hmm. aid the poor. So Medicaid is a welfare program. It's stigmatized. It has a big bureaucracy uh, and it pays providers by which I mean – doctors and hospitals and et cetera, uh, it pays – Medicaid pays providers very poorly. And so for instance, uh, you know, Medicaid largely serves very poor folks, particularly pregnant women and their children. <clears throat> in a lot of cities in Indiana, uh, it's very, very difficult to see a doctor uh, with pregnancy Medicaid because it pays so poorly. So I have concerns about using Medicaid expansion as a way to cover roughly half of those who are going to be covered are going to be covered through a Medicaid expansion. And, uh, you know, it's it's better than nothing, but it's still, it's still problematic. Uh, of course, Governor Daniels has brought up that it's going to uh, potentially be costly for state government because state government plays a large role in financing Medicaid. Uh, you know, the other side of that is that Initially, it's going to be a tremendous boon to the state because to to get this Medicaid expansion started, it's, it's going to be done with federal dollars, and the states stand to be hugely to be benefited hugely. And some of these states' attorney generals who are threatening or trying to you know get their state out of the bill are going to be you know essentially choosing to tend to, to turn down billions of dollars. Um, but then the other way, and I'll and then I'll be quiet because. You know, you have to rein me in sometimes. I can talk and talk. Uh, is that then we're going to uh, encourage people or mandate people through various different ways to get private insurance? And that has some good points and some bad points too. But uh, certainly the, the, the potentially worst part of that from my perspective is that we're going to – force people to buy private insurance, which is kind of a new thing. There are some precedents, but nothing quite on this scale before. And so that potentially, you could describe that as a transfer of wealth from from taxpayers to stockholders, since most of these big insurance companies are are for-profit. So I've got some concerns on that level too. Yeah. Well, it's a complex bill. Dr. Turner, what what were your thoughts on the bill? I see the bill really as a framework or a template that's going to be built upon. And when you read the summaries in particular, uh, there's a lot of gray areas. And, and what we're seeing already is different organizations. One that I belong to, the American Academy of Family Physicians, as an example. They're already sending out uh, updates for us, what's good for you, what we need to work on, and how we can take advantage of, these, uh, of this new legislation. So I see it as a work in progress. Um, a good part of the bill is very sound. You know, I've had the pleasure, and the main reason I'm here is serving as a volunteer medical director for St. Anne Clinic. We've been in Terrell for 12 years, and we've been primarily serving the working poor. Um, we see patients under 120 percent of poverty level. Um, and so on a weekly basis, I've been involved in the people who are going to be getting help from this bill. It could be theoretically possible that um, our patients may no longer need us five years from now. We've been fortunate to have a dental clinic, an eye clinic, and we've served over 45,000 patients since we opened, really with a volunteer staff. So um, on a daily basis, nearly, I see those folks. And the challenge is most of the folks we see are working. Mm -hmm. They are paying taxes in many different ways, at the grocery store, at the gas pump, and so forth. Um, But for multiple different reasons, cannot afford any type of health insurance. It is not easy to get. So we've been sort of filling that gap we get referrals from the emergency room, many different places for people to get medication. We do eye care, dental care, medical care. And uniquely, which maybe no one else in the country does, if patients are admitted to the hospital from our clinic, our family medicine residents care for them, and then they come back to our clinic. We have a true medical home there. The other thing that's somewhat unique, we have a branch of the IU School of Medicine in Terre Haute, now with 48 students, and our new rural program there, too. Um, Our medical students, the third week of medical school in Terre Haute, they come to St. Ann Clinic. They begin seeing patients immediately, starting easily, taking vital signs, getting history, but they're also learning about the challenges of the uninsured from the very early, you know, start of their medical school. So Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a great framework. Something got started, a lot to work on. It'll take a lot of work, but uh, I think we're heading in the right direction. Okay. Dr. Hadai? I do believe this is a historical step our country took forward. I do 
feel that we all of us in the long run will be beneficiary of this, whether we carry insurance today or we don't, as our insurance is skyrocketing to a degree. Even me as a retired surgeon, I find it difficult to pay for my bills these days, especially I'm getting older and too many pills and uh, hospitals. With that said and done, I think the volunteer in medicine of Bloomington is an institution is going to stay for as long as I see it. I think we're going to have attrition in the number of the patient we see, but that is wonderful. That is just part of our job to think that we are accomplishing a goal to get the people insured as we are progressing toward rendering care for these folks. The bill is phenomenal bill, giant bill. However, the country does need something like that. Uh, with that said, there are too many buds out of the main stem in this bill. Mm. Some of them need to be pulled out or eclipsed. Some of them need to be stretched and, in, and encouraged. Uh, unfortunately, our country divided into so many pessimistic voices we hear day in and day out. And these, we need to work on them to bring them to be supportive to the bill. These folks, almost 45, 50 percent of the country, we need to bring them in to put their ideas to nurture this new uh, plant which we are getting to go up. They do have good ideas, but the politics part of it should not and it must not interfere with the care of the people who need the care. Uh, I tell you, just like Dr. Turner a minute ago mentioned, I do see, I go to the clinic, and afternoon I see about 10 to 12 patients. I will say 7 out of 10, they are working people. The 7 out of 10, they have a hard time to have the end meets. And I think it is not a moral responsibility as far as I see it, but these people who work, we should encourage them to keep going from financial point of view too, in order to uh, give them the health care in order to keep productive folks. Otherwise, if they are sick and they are unemployed, they will be enrolled in another welfare program. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the pessimistic people why they don't think mm-hmm. in the other side of the coin, which we are trying to address. Mm-hmm. But all in all, I think it is a phenomenal bill. It needs to have a lot of adjustment, adjustment. But we are moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're glad to be alive to see it. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. And WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website that you can go to to send us an email. We have a phone call. We have an email. We have Lots of emails. Yeah, we have uh, a lot of things to talk about. So let's go to the phone first. And Michael is on the phone. Michael? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank you for having uh, people um, providing health care to low-income people here in uh, the community and advocating for uh, more health care for everybody. But one of my uh, main questions about the uh, health care bill is uh, is caps on premiums. Is if this, um, I called our local representative there in Hill's office and asked about caps on premiums and how much it would cost, and nobody seems to have... Uh, a grasp on this because I was trying to study it a little bit and in uh, Massachusetts where they do require insurance the average for a family is pretty pretty high it was over ten thousand dollars a year annually so my concern is that at some point I will have to choose between you know feeding my family and paying for health insurance and I think if there's no caps on the premiums then I don't know if it will be affordable and and that's my main question with this bill is that I didn't see any any mandatory caps on the health insurers, and, and I'm still trying to work it out. So I would like uh, to address this question. All right. Anybody have an answer to that? Dr. Stone? My understanding is that um, there are no actual caps on premiums or really strict uh, enforcement uh, of where the premiums will go. And I think that's been one of the concerns uh, about the bill that's been raised. 
On the other hand, um, the the bill, probably one of the strongest parts about it is <clears throat> what it does for lower income and middle income people. Uh, I believe up to Jim, it's up to 400 percent of federal poverty is is where there would be subsidies to help people afford their premiums. And 400 percent of poverty is a family of four with you know a little over eighty thousand dollars a year in income. And so um, lower and middle income people really stand to benefit from this. Um, but the premiums may get high, but there will be some the premiums may go up. Of course, we know they're you know premiums have doubled in the last ten years anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you know. Hopefully, there will we will make this thing work in such a way that it will be affordable to a lot more people rather than to fewer people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me follow up and just ask about the you know the um, the area of the bill that's somewhat controversial, which means, which says that everybody has to have insurance. Um, I've got uh, some a cheat sheet from CNN here that says that what happens in 2014 is that an IRS penalty of seven hundred and fifty dollars per individual or two percent. Uh, of income, whichever is greater, will kick in for those who choose not to purchase health insurance. So, you know, is this going to be is this a good part of the bill, or is this something that really is going to be problematic, Dr. Turner? I think the I think it's reasonable to ask everyone to pay something for their health care. You'll hear a lot of people talk about that. It, it you will people tend to abuse something they don't have some responsibility for, and that includes taking care of our own health and our own wellness. We have some responsibility for that. So I think if you feel like you have um, access to totally unlimited, free health care, it's not worked out very well. And as uh, Dr. Stone says, the the numbers are ratcheted down. So you're not going to struggle to be able to make this, but you should contribute something to your medical care, just like you do your car insurance and so forth. So I think the numbers are going to be very reasonable. People will be able to afford it, but they need to take some financial responsibility for their health care. Any – Dr. Stone, any reaction? You agree? Disagree? Well, when you talk about a fine of seven hundred fifty dollars a year, uh, and the previous caller talked about you know, ten thousand dollar average premium uh, for a family. Actually, I think nationally the the average is a little bit over twelve thousand dollars a year for someone uh, buying insurance and paying the, mm-hmm. the whole part themselves. Not not what they're not counting what their employer would pay, but twelve thousand dollars a year. So the fine is not terribly high. Uh, but um, you know, in the enforcement of this whole thing is where um, there's going to be uh, there's going to be some pushback, um, and you know, we haven't quite figured out the best way to do that. And of course, the enforcement itself ends up being uh, adds an administrative expense to the whole system. And as you, uh, Bob, as you mentioned in the introduction, you know, my my preference would be to expand Medicare, what's called a single payer system, and just bring everybody in. Uh, Rather than have to, which would actually cuts administrative expenses, and the mandate uh, increases administrative expenses. Okay, Raj, you have anything you want to add? I understood that uh, this bill will empower each state to uh, ask the insurance companies to justify any increase in a premium, and that is a step in the right direction to let them think before they uh, start billing their. Customers, so that is a point in that. As far as the everybody should pay, I believe it is critical that the healthy young people could help in order to balance the need of the sick today. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, I am orthopedic surgeon. During my years, I saw so many young kids involved in wrecks and accidents, and they have phenomenal bills. So the kids who they say they are healthy, they may be, and I hope they will continue. But the few of them who get involved in these horrendous accidents, their bills costlier than any elderly people you will imagine. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I think it is a good shelter and a good shield for their future to have coverage. Mm All right. All right. We've had several excellent emails that have come in. I'm going to start with this one. Uh, it says, will you please comment on what changes seniors can expect to experience in the new health care legislation? Dr. Turner, can we start with you? Are you? I don't think there's going to be great changes for the seniors. Um, one of the challenges with, with Medicare and even if you think about Social Security also, the programs worked. And when they were really eventually instituted, and, you, know, you know, Medicare back in 64 and Social Security in the 30s, people didn't live that long. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, it was well-funded. 
Well, today we've in this century we've nearly, nearly doubled the life expectancy since the turn of the century, last century, um, and the technology continues to explode. And we don't want to hinder any technological growth because that's part of our economy. So um, I don't think they're going to see major changes um, in what patients are experiencing with their Medicare system now. Medicare is one of our best systems. I mean, for a private practitioner like myself, when we see a Medicare patient, we're generally paid the same day electronically. You know, as Dr. Stone knows much better than I, Medicare has no – they don't have to advertise. They don't have to market. They don't have a board of directors. They don't have stockholders. It's an extremely efficient system um, with very low overhead compared to health insurance. So I don't think we're going to see a major change for our seniors, but we have to realize this program is going to run out of money. And there's going to, have to be some changes. It's going to be in trouble actually before Social Security is. And part of it is because it has worked well. It's not that it's been bad. We have – people have lived longer. They've had more technology. So it's not that the program was designed poorly or worked poorly. It's actually worked. And that's partly why it's in financial <coughs> trouble as Social Security is. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to the phones. Let's have uh, – Wayne is on the phone. Wayne? Hi. I'd, I'd like the doctor's opinion of an alternative to the – medical reform that has been passed of uh, this this medical reform that i would like their opinion would 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 make uh, mo- more medical care available at a at a lower cost and provide employment as well why not have paramedical practitioners the same way that we have paralegal practitioners do you know do you ever heard of a paralegal who does uh, he does he does not have a law degree but he does legal work in very limited specialty. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. All right. I think we have the gist of your question, Wayne. Thank okay. you. Okay. Now, now, why not do the same thing with, with medicine where we would train non-doctors to treat patients in a very limited special case and in their limited training? That, that would include recognizing medical complications which were beyond their competence so that they could refer those complications to an MD. Wayne, so why not do Wayne, that? Wayne, this is Dr. Stone. I, th- I think I can... Can, can help answer that question. You know, right now there is, you know, quite a hierarchy of uh, different medical practitioners from, you know, specialized physicians to generalized physicians to nurse practitioners and physician's assistants to specialized registered nurses to regular registered nurses to licensed practical nurses and various different technicians and respiratory therapists. I mean, there, there really actually is quite a hierarchy now. And it's been an ongoing debate about, you know, how, how to expand coverage. And, um, you know, so, for instance, in the emergency room in Bloomington, we're utilizing uh, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants more than in the past. So it's a good idea, but I think we're actually working on it right now. Dr. Turner? Actually, Indiana State University just um, got approval from the State Commission on Higher Education to begin their first physician's assistant program. Um, it's going to start in January. We'll bring in 30 students. It's a 27-month course. What the caller says is exactly right. Workforce challenges are out there. The Academy of Family Physicians feels that by 2020, which is only 10 years away, that we're going to be short 40,000 family physicians in America. They found this out in Massachusetts when they instituted their plan. It's a workforce shortage. So, But look at that in a positive light. That's an opportunity for workforce growth. So as I mentioned, Indiana State just started the physician assistant program in January. They just got an approval a few weeks ago for a doctorate in physical therapy, a doctorate in nursing practice program, and they've been to the commission and are going through a feasibility study. They hope to be able to obtain a college of pharmacy at Indiana State in Terre Haute. So workforce development is a nice positive thing. We have to think about the positive economic impact of health care. Mm-hmm. Most of our health care dollars do not leave this country. They provide jobs. In the rural county that I practice in, just 16,000 people, we have over 400 health care jobs. And we're the second biggest employer in the county. Mm-hmm. Um, when you add up the staff in a nursing home, pharmacy, home health, hospice, mm-hmm. our nursing staff, mm-hmm. and of those 400 people, they're pretty good jobs and have health insurance with them. And it's a career that you may want your child to go into. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the, the amount of money spent on health care, it stays in this country. It buys cars. It buys houses. You're able to send your kids to school. Uh, it's dollars that stay in our communities. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. Dr. Hadali, I wanted to ask about the about the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic because I believe you do have nurse practitioners that volunteer there. And do you have physician's assistants as well or just physicians? 
Well, we do have physician volunteer, we have volunteer nurse practitioner, and we have employee of the Bloomington Hospital, where the hospital provide hair service to the volunteer in medicine. Mm-hmm. So we utilize the combination of nurse practitioner and physician. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, I go to Wayne questions. No, please. I think Wayne is up to something here. What is he asking us, how are we going to address the medical or the professional need of the patients since we go into enroll a lot of people on the program. That point, in my opinion, is critical, and we may insure the people, but if they don't get appointment because of low pay or lack of providers. In my opinion, if you ask me what the bill should address, I believe they should have what I call it Marshall Plan for Healthcare Providers. We still have many years to enroll so many people. One of them, it's not hard to increase the number of the nurses, encourage the nurses and bachelor to proceed to get nurse practitioner or physician assistant. And we may go ahead and enlarge the enrollment of our medical school. That, it takes logistic, it takes fund, but that is one thing we could do. And we could do it efficiently and we could be prepared to receive the millions of people who might be enrolled. And there is one other thing is there are a lot of physicians retiring now because they really don't have an option to work part-time due to the high premium for their malpractice, and consequently they shut their door and step to the side while both for their well-being and for the patient's need and the experience and the talents they have during the years, I think we could make an open part of the window to encourage the physician prior to their retirement to consider to do part-time work. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. We've, we're listening to uh, or we're talking to uh, Dr. Raj Shadali, Dr. James Turner and Dr. Rob Stone. We're talking about the health reform uh, law now that's uh, taking effect over the next few years. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org. And the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking about health care reform today with um, three physicians from our area, Dr. Raj Hadawi, a board member of the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic, um, who actually one of the people who helped found it. The um, Let's see, the medical director from St. Anne's Clinic, uh, James Turner from Terre Haute. That clinic is in Terre Haute. And also Dr. Rob Stone, an emergency room physician and the director of Hoosiers for a Common Sense Health Plan. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 if you're outside the Bloomington area or you can find us on the website wfiu.org slash noon edition. David's been patiently waiting on the phone, so let's go to David. Good afternoon, uh, and thank you for uh, putting this program on. It's uh, desperately needed by the community. Uh, I'm very interested in getting the opinion of both Dr. Turner, Stone, and Hadawi on two topics that are related. Number one is the a possibility that has been discussed here in Bloomington, of course, uh, of both IU 
uh, and the city of Bloomington considering uh, clinics, uh, health care clinics, primarily, obviously, primary care uh, services as a way of cutting their respective cost for health care. And a companion question uh, is uh, how do we... Uh, encourage the medical community to uh, particularly uh, the physicians at the primary as well as the specialty level of understanding the concept of an HSA and even more importantly the HRA which is a health reimbursement accounts that many of the local employers are going to as a easy access for the employers to direct their employees to Healthcare, while at the same time uh, guaranteeing the providers of that care immediate payment, thus eliminating what we constantly hear is the nightmare of uh, filing of medical forms and claim forms, uh, and namely the infamous UB92s and the HICVA 1500s. All right. Dr. Stone. A couple of things to think about here. One, um, which I'll just be very brief about, is you know the concept of uh, 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 IU Bloomington Clinic, uh, a city county I, clinic. Yeah, and I think Monroe County has been talking about the clinic. I'm not sure if the city of Bloomington. Actually, it's, it's the county. Yeah, You're right. right. Yeah, it's the county. Those are, are interesting ideas, and I, I can't really comment a whole lot more on them to say other than to say they're interesting ideas. And I think in Bloomington, we've been um, people. What's gotten people's attention is the Cook Clinic, which I think has been very cost effective and high quality and popular with its patients. And but I I don't know that we need. There's a lot more to say about these other clinics yet because we don't really know exactly how how they're they're going to work. Uh, but it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Health savings accounts is are actually something I'm not very fond of, <laughs> uh, and I'll and I'll tell you why, and I'll try to be brief. It's a it's a big topic, but uh, health savings accounts are. Uh, for those who don't understand them, <laughs> they're a little complicated, but they're a way to set aside tax deferred money to pay your medical bills, and they're generally paired with a um, high deductible health insurance plan with you know at least I think a thousand dollar deductible sometimes your employer contributes some to them they've got some tax advantages to them uh, and so that's a very nice thing about them and of course uh, if you're in a higher tax bracket then they're more advantageous to you now here's one of my problems with health savings accounts I don't think our problem in this country is that wealthy people in high tax brackets uh, are having a lots of problems getting healthier. I think our problem is people in low tax brackets. Uh, and so actually, if you look at the national st- statistics on health savings accounts, uh, uh, there are a lot of people in middle income um, situations who have health savings accounts, but they're not, they've never actually been adequately funded because they've had to make other decisions about the money. So from a, po- from a personal perspective, I'm not advocating anyone get out of their health savings account. I've got a health savings account, okay? From a personal perspective, through my employer, it makes sense to have a health savings account and I'm in a high enough tax bracket, I can take full advantage of it. But from a policy perspective, I'm not a fan of health savings accounts because the other thing about them is that, you know, while I agree with Dr. Turner that I think everyone should contribute and it's really important for people to contribute to their health care, on the other hand, I do have concerns about... Uh, the argument for health savings accounts, which often uses this rather colorful term that people need to, quote, have skin in the game, uh, that the more you pay for health care, the more you'll take better care of yourself. And it turns out there's actually not much evidence to uh, provide to, – to back that up. Um, if you have really high copays and deductibles, it does discourage you from going to the hospital when you've got a you know a little headache uh, and you think you've got to have a CAT scan right away. But it also turns out, and this is all data I'm talking about, that it also discourages people from going to the hospital when they've got a little pain in their chest that might turn out to be a heart attack. So there's problems with health savings accounts. Oh, all right. Yeah, let's go to the email for a <laughs> I couldn't see your hand out of the corner of my eye. Sorry. All right, here we go. Uh, Mitch Daniels has frozen HIP, that's the uh, Healthy Indiana program, temporarily so that no new patients can enroll. The media seems to give contradicting reasons for this. Does anyone know why? Is it to save money for the expansion coming down the pipeline? Anybody? Nope. 
Oh, go ahead, Raj. I know they stopped issuing any insurance policy for the last six months for individuals who do not have children live in, in the house. However, there is a big, strong push now to freeze everything at this level, which my understanding so far, the HIP program had been in two years or better in action. They've insured about 40,000 individuals, and they are going to hold on issuing further due to cost. While they are not issuing a new one, they committed themselves to continue support the insured one. Okay. Now, I do have patients at Volunteers in Medicine, where I volunteer as well, who are currently applying for HIP. I mean, I'm talking about people who I talked to last week, um, and they haven't been told that they have no chance of getting approved, but maybe they just don't realize. I'm not sure. I do not, I, my recollection of the stories is that it is a suspension, not discontinuing the program, and that the governor said some things about how he wanted to wait and see what the cost of the new health care plan would be to Indiana. So. Perhaps they're still letting people get in the line. Yeah. Based on, okay. All right. Here's here's a, I've got a three-parter for you guys. Indiana, number one, Indiana has struggled to cover all the uninsured who already qualify for Medicaid. Under the new bill, even more Hoosiers will be covered. Considering the poor health stats of Indiana, how will the state pay for the new expansion? All right. Good question. Dr. Turner? One of the roles as a family physician is preventative health care. Mm-hmm. We, we're kind of the lunch pail part of the health care system, in my opinion, were the meat and potato guys and girls. Um, you know, I delivered babies for 16 years, the closest hospital, 22 miles from my office. Um, we really need to ramp up chronic disease management and preventative care. And if we can do that and if people have some type of insurance and they can come and see us on a regular basis, it should eventually be cheaper. We see people on a, see people on a regular basis who have something that's gone way too far, diabetes out of control, skin infection, so forth. We end up admitting to the hospital for thousands of dollars. So I think – but that's going to require workforce that's, that we don't have. So we're going to really need to crank up our workforce uh, in the educational model. Um, and I think if we can really head towards preventative care and proper management of chronic diseases, we'll actually save money. It's a lovely segue into the second part of this question, which is how does the new bill um, compare to the Healthy Indiana Plan? Uh, how does it compare in pushing prevention and well-being? What I've seen in the bill, um, it actually increases rein- reimbursement to primary care physicians. And one of our challenges when we're trying to find family doctors like myself is I don't get paid enough and I'm coming out of medical school with $150,000 debt or, or greater. I'm not going to become a country doctor. Even though we have developed a rural program now at Indiana University starting its third class in Terre Haute, we just found out yesterday another 16 students are going to be coming in to be rural physicians to, to serve underserved Indiana. Um, so there's going to be some increased reimbursement. Uh, there's an uh, increase in student loan uh, programs. Uh, National Health Service Corps is going to be markedly increased. Increased funding for community health centers around the nation, which really generally employ primary care physicians and so forth. So um, there's actually some positive things for preventative care and primary care, particularly underserved areas in this, in this bill. Excellent. All right. The last part of this question is uh, there are rumors physicians are leaving the trade because they are concerned about Medicaid compensations. Will more physicians retire and resign or will many just quit taking Medicaid patients? Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, Rob. Well, two parts to the answer to that question. One is, you know, we in Bloomington, uh, but also nationally, uh, have had this uh, little kerfluffle, including in the newspaper recently, uh, because the paper had to uh, public published a retraction uh, because uh, there was this, you know, basically rumor uh, allegedly attributed to the New England Journal of Medicine that some huge number of physicians had uh, reported that they were going to quit practice after this bill passed, uh, and it turns out, you know, that was just. A, a tremendous exaggeration based on not real data. Um, what was the other part I was going to say? Now I forgot what I was going to say. Um, let's see. Uh, sorry, I flipped. Uh, also, um, oh, well, many quit taking Medicaid. Oh, patients. right. And but Medicaid—that's you know, that's part of what I was saying before about the Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion. Um, right now, there are a fair number of uh, physicians who won't take Medicaid at all because they 
are worried about the reimbursement rates. There are many, many physicians uh, in Bloomington, for instance, who do take Medicaid patients, but for uh, you know obvious reasons, and I completely understand, they have to limit the number of Medicaid patients that they can see. So they'll take you know a hundred into the practice or several hundred into the practice, but then they can't take any more Medicaid because they need to have other people who reimburse better. So I think one of the problems with Medicaid is that it hasn't reimbursed well enough. Although I think there are some th- things in this bill that would increase some of Medicaid's reimbursements, particularly for primary care. The one thing your callers may not know about, a small caveat, there is something called a rural health clinic, which our office is one of those, and there are several hundred throughout the state. Also in the state of Indiana, there are what's called critical access hospitals. We help serve one in Clinton, Indiana. Mm -hmm. Um, By definition, those hospitals are less than 25 beds, but they're that small community hospital that really is one of the major, oftentimes a major employer in that county. Also in Clinton, as an example, there is a community health center. All these programs allow increased reimbursement. If you're going to be out there in the country, so you get increased reimbursement from Medicare and Medicaid. So for us, in my rural office, we're in a two-stoplight town. When we see a Medicaid patient, we don't get that $20 or $30 rate. We may get more closer to a Medicare rate of $70 or $80. So it's somewhat of an incentive because it's hard to attract people to go mm-hmm. into rural areas or underserved areas. So there are several caveats that that do allow increased reimbursement if you want to go out there and work in the country mm-hmm. or you want to go to an underserved area. Um, do you like you it? Can do it's, it's my hometown. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been there 21 years and it's uh, – of course, I'm going to stay there. So you recommend it to others? Well, we actually – you know, we're very proud of our rural program. We, we modeled our program in Terre Haute uh, after the University of Illinois program, which has been there for 25 years and um, – the, there was never a program to encourage medical students to go to, into a rural area. Even though there were a lot of great young people who wanted to do that, they didn't know that mechanism. And it goes all the way back to the demographics of graduating from a high school class of 40 or 50. You don't have the same opportunities when you start the university and you often get behind. You're just as smart. You can do just as well, but you're going to play some catch-up. When we interviewed students, and we just did this two weeks ago for the school in Terre Haute, when they get interviewed for medical school, they're also interviewed by townspeople. Mm-hmm. We're interviewed by mayors, local people, school board, and so forth. We're looking for people. And they, they, they have been accepted to medical school academically. They're, they're fine. But we're looking for that extra niche. You know, are, they, are they rural enough? Um, and they are. And we just interviewed these students and we just found out today who's going to come. So um, the impact of these students financially, the average rural physician probably brings about 22 jobs with them. When you look at home health, hospice, all things we talked about earlier, and, and about $1.5 million in the local economy. So the students that we have in our program right now in Terre Haute, when they finish residency after medical school, three or four more years of residency, they're going to be bringing 35 to $40 million of new industry into rural Indiana. And if you talk to mayors and county councilmen, they want a medical clinic in their community. If business sees an active medical clinic that is well-run, they may want to expand their business. If they see a small town where there's no medical clinic, there's no dentist, in my opinion, it shows them a town that's not well organized and not very progressive. But if they see just the opposite, if they see a hometown person who's come back, bringing colleagues with them, uh, they're happy, um, things are going well, that industry is going to look at, you know, I think this is a town that we can grow in. So there's many repercussions to, to developing this rural program. And uh, our first class will be graduating in another year and beginning to serve rural Indiana. And with that program, there are uh, primary care scholarships. So if they remain in a rural area, they will leave medical school debt-free. Wow. So it's That's quite a huge a incentive. Wow. Right? But you still have to have the right person. You can't, sure. no offense, you can't get somebody from Carmel to go to Clay City, Indiana. It's just not good. Demographically, it's never been shown to happen or be successful. But if you can get that young person from Clay City, Indiana, town of 800, we have a rural clinic there, they'll go back because that's their roots and they're happy there. So there's a lot of exciting things happening as far as serving that underserved rurally, um, medically and economically. Uh, All right. That's so interesting. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, we we have uh, two phone calls. So let's go to Joe next. Joe? Hello? Hey, Joe. Hi. This question is for Dr. Stone, but anybody could comment on it. And I don't know if they want to get into this. I haven't heard him talk about it yet. I think the health care reform is a good start. I think the answer would be single-payer national health care. I don't know why there wouldn't be a grassroots effort among all Americans to have that, but it was obviously difficult enough to get the Americans to 
support national health care. I mean, support just the health care reform that's been passed now. I don't know if they want to make any comments on national health care or not. Thank you. Well, Joe, really, all I'd say is what I said at the start, health care reform, I'm, I'm still for it, and we've got work to do, and um, I think it's marvelous that uh, I think, to me, the most most gratifying part of, of this bill passing is that we have faced the political difficulties and the fears and anxieties uh, of addressing this this. True crisis that our country faces this lack of health care, and we've heard a little bit about you know how how in, in rural areas uh, you know it, it's a real problem the, the lack of access to health care, and we've also heard how there are plans some that have already started and some that are now going to be able to be expanded that are really going to help people access health care and it's going to help the economy of small towns, and it takes political will. Or another way to phrase that is it takes some involvement of the governor of the government and the taxpayers to to bring about these changes and so that's what we've got to do and that's what we've done and we can be proud of what we've done and and but we can't sit back and think now that the job's done. All right, and we have a, another phone call and it's Joseph. Joseph? Hello? Hi, go ahead. Hi. Yes, I wondered if the panelists could discuss uh, what's been missing so far, and that's uh, how to keep the cost of uh, health care down. That is an interesting component to being having affordable, sustainable health care. Uh, one of the panelists mentioned somebody goes to the doctor for a headache, and they go, well, well, we'll do a CT scan. But what about saying, well, what's your environment? What's your diet? Uh, other things, uh, they could take a stethoscope of their artery to their head instead of doing these very expensive CT scans. And I wonder what we can do to bring the cost down of some of these uh, maybe not necessary procedures and do some more uh, basic thinking. I don't know. I just want to see what the panel right, has we'll to say about Dr. that. Dr. Hadali has uh, the first answer to this. It's a very good question and well needed, and the country struggled to find an answer to that. I have two thoughts about this which I have a feeling that they will control the cost, not necessarily they lower it, but they should put a cap on increase in the future. One is tort reform. We as physicians since the early 70s has been immersed in the cultures of fear of pointing finger at what we do from the legal firms. And that has been, during the year, just embedded it through our brain, and we, it is culture. We pass it to the students, and they learn it from us. The, we try to make the sophisticated test as quality of care, and that is so wrong. But that is where we are today, a good legal reform to let us change the thinking how we address cases as they come, and there are a lot of examples, but there are no times here to talk about, is we may reduce about 15% of the cost of medical care by just practicing good, practical, honest medicine. The second thing, which it is in the bill, which I believe it will come to fruit down the road, is to have the quality assessment panels. Just to throw a a simple example, an Alzheimer, 90 years old individual in a nursing home with diabetes and high blood pressure and suddenly have a heart attack. Is he or she a candidate to have a cardiac catheterization and a stint? Well, if we don't do it, somebody will say we did not do our job. If we do it, it costs tens of thousands of dollars, and in both cases, he he or she will die in a week. So am I going to try to defend myself? But the point in all that, if we just address these practically, honestly, I think we could hold the medical cost between 15 to 20 percent, and that is good enough for me. Mm -hmm. Dr. Turner? I think if you – and I agree with what Dr. said, and I I think if you have access to uh, a family physician who you know and you present with that headache – they're going to do a good examination on you. Maybe they went to school with you. Maybe they delivered your babies. Um, and you're very comfortable letting them go home. They have your home number. They know how to reach you if there's a major change. And so I think the way we – and if there's a concern, you bring them back the next day. 
if you don't have access to primary care, you're going to go from one emergency room to the next. So we feel like family physicians are really the cheapest way to, and in some ways, probably the most efficient way to get health care um, in America. So we approach that, that, that kind of a medical situation completely differently. And I would agree with Dr. Turner completely. I mean, there's lots and lots of data that shows that good primary care physicians and nurse practitioners, et cetera, can provide higher quality uh, care at a lower cost. And it doesn't necessarily mean what, as Dr. Hadawi said, that the more cost means uh, higher quality. But I just would want to point out, too, that we do have this real paradox in our country that we've got, you know, 50 million people who don't, can't afford to get uh, adequate care, and then we've got uh, a lot of people who are maybe getting too much care. I'm going to paraphrase very quickly this last email, which just uh, suggests that uh, if you want to help volunteers in medicine, you can go to their website, um, www.vimmonroecounty.org. Uh, and there are many ways you can help, uh, including uh, they say nothing is too small, even a box of Band-Aids or a highlighter. So lots of opportunities go. for anybody locally uh, to get involved there. Mm-hmm. And with that, we'll give Dr. Hadawi the last minute to talk about uh, the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic. It's been open now for how long? On the 23rd of April this month, we will be serving the community for three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're very glad and very delighted, actually, about the support which we receive from the community in their volunteerism, in their passing the good word out, and in their financial support. However, we feel we've been honored, truly, to enroll so far close to 6,000 individuals from Monroe and Allen County to be our patients. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough for the doctors and the nurses Mm -hmm. who spend so much time and effort, whether within the walls of the clinic or outside the clinic. They've been our cheerleaders. They've been our supporter. I understand some of them are getting tired. And it is uh, very – I am one of them used to be. I get tired too. (laughs) But with that said, I think the core of the support from the medical community and in particular the Bloomington Hospital – has been above our expectation. Do we have bumps and difficulties? Of course, but I think we have the spine to take them over. We are uh, expanding ourselves. We need to reach out for anybody who hears us today that he or she and will know somebody who is in need for care and can't afford it let them come to the volunteer in medicine. We are here to serve. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Hadawi, and also Dr. James Turner and Dr. Rob Stone. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.